Hello, Tome Show listeners. We have a special treat for you today. The awesome Wade Rocket of Pelgrane Press has given the Tome Show the audio from their 13th Age Gen Con seminars. 13th Age is a great fantasy RPG designed by Rob Heinsu, one of the lead developers of 4th edition D&D, and Jonathan Tweet, one of the lead developers of 3rd edition D&D. 13th Age has been described as a spiritual successor to 4th edition D&D. It has tactical combat elements, but it also integrates narrative role-playing game elements right into the system. This is the kind of game that might interest D&D players, so we thought our audience would enjoy hearing these seminars. Thank you for listening. All right, this is the 13th Age Game Master Roundtable. I am your host, Wade Rocket, uh, community relations guy for 13th Age. I uh, was part of, I think, the second round of playtesters for 13th Age, and then a few months after that, um, as the Escalation Edition came out, I started running a campaign. So I've been running 13th Age uh, for the same group for more than two years, uh, and I've run demos at conventions as well, uh, as well as uh, full-on adventures for uh, Gen Con events. So that's the experience that I have under my belt. And as I just mentioned, uh, Cal Moore and I are currently working on a Game Master's screen and a GM's guide to accompany it uh, for 13th Age. So it's going to be like the Keeper's screen for Trail of Cthulhu, where you'll get the screen, but then also this booklet. Because a lot of people have asked for some sort of you know GM book. And it's like, well, it's okay. It might be nice to collate a lot of the stuff that's scattered throughout the different books into one place. Um, so that it's kind of a quick reference guide for you guys. So that's, that's something that's in the works right now. Um, but enough about me. Let's continue down the line. Okay. I'm Stacy Muth. I am a uh, two-time and current uh, Ennies judge, and I had the pleasure of judging 13th Age when it came out um, a couple years ago and nominated and won and, and did really well. I've uh, played in it for the past year. I've also GM'd it, and uh, I think it's it's really great. I'm a big Pelgrim Press fan. I probably shouldn't say that as an any judge, but I am. <laughs> so, <laughs> Wait, hey, no one's going to hear this. It's okay. okay. <laughs> it's not being recorded. Yeah. <laughs> So, hello, I'm Ash, Ash Law. Um, I run the organized play program for 13th Page. I've been GMing and playing 13th Page like twice weekly for. since the second round of playtests, I think. So, long enough that we're now on our third campaign, having gone from first attempt. We're now. went first attempt, first attempt, and then we're currently at 8th level and everybody who has uh, all the characters uh, as soon as we switched to 8th level, all the characters who were driving the plot forwards uh, died or went insane or were exiled <laughs> so our new characters so it's like, it's like two, two I'm sure they did that on their own <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, now everybody's doing, we're, we're doing Quest in the Cathedral but as an 8th level one to go see the Oracle to ask her what the heck's going on, so that's, that's been interesting because I wrote that Two, three years ago, and I can't, I can't remember it now. <laughs> so I'm like, there's a harvest rat. What now? Why did I do that? Also, uh, what, what's interesting uh, is that Ash and I uh, have a player in common. Um, my friend uh, James is part of my campaign, but he lives down near where Ash is and wanted to play 13th Age more than just once a month with me. So 
he's getting a, a very different experience um, at the table with Ash than he is with me because I we are still on the same campaign and everything takes place in this tiny little corner of the map, whereas I believe your campaign is all over the place. Well, uh, we've, and been, completely we've, been, mad. we've been dimension jumping. Yeah. But at one point by accident so my, my wizard yes. picks up this orb and it's a really fragile orb but if we use it right we can dimension jump and I'm like you know what we really don't want to break this orb I'm going to, I'm going to ritually cast mend on this and the GM's like sure sure so she's uh, M says yeah just just roll don't roll a one rolling a one would be really interesting so I'm like okay we'll go down the pub where all the wizards hang out I'm sure they've got spell components we'll just catch some spell components off them one Entire pub full of wizards to another dimension. <laughs> nice. Uh, I'm Cal Moore. I uh, wrote Shadows of Elderwine. I am in my second uh, full campaign in the system. Uh, the first one ended quite well. And uh, I've got a, a little touch on this is about all the core books and stuff like that, working with Rob and those guys. So. And I'm Gareth Witterhanrahan. I wrote Eyes of the Stone Thief, Make Your Own Luck, and Atlan's Edge, which were the two short free RPG adventures and one adventure that was not quite so short nor so free. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I've run 30 day playtest campaigns and so forth for a while. And yeah, that's me for Advantage Shop and Dracula. All right, so uh, since it's a GM roundtable... Uh, Only rectangular. <laughs> it's, well, it is. We don't have a roundtable. Um, however, I assume that many of you, perhaps most of you in the audience, are GMs. So can we get a show of hands? How many of you are current GMs or past GMs? Okay. Brilliant. How many players do we have? Okay. How many are just players? You. Hello. <laughs> There's always one. That's great because now we can sort of like look at you and say, does this make her happy or sad? And we say, here's what you should do. The answer is sad, it's good. <laughs> uh, too late. <laughs> um, right. Well, people have made their own screens. And uh, there's uh, at uh, 13thage.org, uh, you can download a very nice insert, uh, which is handy. Um, so, I would like, and let me know if you disagree, maybe we could just like start taking questions and see what people actually care about and what issues they're running into at the table, and we can address it from our own unique perspectives. I was going to add another adjective, but let's just say you unique. Uh, so, does anybody have the question, I've got this one player in my game, and... So, does anybody have that question? No, great, this is the first GM panel I've been at. Where people have not had a problem playing. Brilliant. Okay. Well, hold on. Oh, I'm not saying that. Hold on. Oh. <laughs> Who, what, what is your problem player? Uh, well, she. I try and give a lot of like uh, role playing opportunities and everything. Um, and all of my other players have like gotten to be friends with PCs or or NPCs and everything and. Um, she just, um, I turn to her and I go, okay, so what are you doing? She goes, nothing. There's nothing for me to do. And I'm like, I want you to be more integrated into the world, but you've got to do things. And so I'm, I'm running into trouble trying to open up opportunities for her. Okay, so
what 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 character? Okay, should you play? Let's, so so the question uh, for those of you listening at home, uh, there's a player who is not engaged in role playing. That other characters are are doing stuff. They're making friends with NPCs. They're getting involved in the world. And this one claims she has nothing to do during those times. So so what character class is she playing? Uh, she's playing rogue. And, like, in the world, like, I gave her a little bit of backstory. You're part of this elite group, and you're being sent to spy on adventurers, basically. Okay, so uh, give her give her an NPC follower, like uh, an apprentice, mm-hmm. that's kind of foisted on her by the Rogue's Guild or by the Prince of Shadows. Here's your apprentice. Uh, tell her every time she interacts with her apprentice during a quick rest, she can maximize the recovery. One, one recovery. But she has to interact... With, with her apprentice. And her apprentice will come over and help stitch her wounds and that sort of thing. And then have the apprentice get involved with what and drag her in. She's, she'll be like, uh, uh, Master, Mistress, please please come over. I, I've stolen this stuff, but I got caught. But they said, if I came back with you, it would all be okay. So, uh, yeah, give a, give a, uh, a Robin to her Batman and then have Robin get in trouble. But also give her a mechanical reward, a small one. For interacting with that Robin, because, and, and one of the things I was wondering about this player is uh, if during the role playing times she says she has nothing to do. When does she come alive during a game? Like, what kinds of things does she like? Only during battle. She likes maximizing her damage. She likes being able to sneak attack and tell me all the rules at once. And I'm, like, I, I'm aware of the rules. It's so cool. I know you can do these things. She's like, yeah, but I will like five to sixes. So yeah, so I, I think that Ash's uh, advice is really good. Is just play to what she likes to do at the table you know I mean rather than just have her sit around and be bored because yeah. um, when you have players who need different things and find the fun in different things it's good to give everyone a chance but mm-hmm. this, that's a nice way to yeah. but, so better. maybe her small benefit isn't maximize recoveries during a during make, a, make a crunchy a yeah it'll, it'll be something like uh, once per battle your apprentice can can like flank so you can get yeah. your flanking yeah. thing yeah. And, and that would be uh so that, but you have to interact with her during the during the rest beforehand, because otherwise, you know, and she's then giving the apprentice advice on how to do stuff in battle. So it brings in the I like battling stuff, but it helps her to role play about how cool she is in battle. One question: Have you actually had like personal conversation to ask her what kind of themes might appeal to her? Has she given yes. you any feedback on that? And she said, "Oh, anything and oh, whatever." <laughs> <laughs> Look at everybody; they're like, "Oh, the old anything." People. <laughs> Some players are just the people who are perfectly happy to sit in their chairs and and watch it and watch it go down, and that can yeah. be infuriating for a game master, but because you don't think they're having a good time, but then you're like, well, did, did, did you enjoy the session? It's like, yeah, it was great, you know. <laughs> so one other thing you might think about is since she's a rogue, is have her implicated as for stealing something she didn't, and have all the NPCs focusing on her and always coming after her. You know, she has to go to contacts, find out who's after her, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. What's her one unique thing? What was that? What's her one unique thing? Her one unique thing? Yeah. Doesn't role play. <laughs> <laughs> I am the only player at the table who doesn't engage. Yeah, on, on the hatches. Yeah. Um, I'm not exactly sure anymore. <laughs> oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> I guess that's bad me. But, uh... <laughs> but basically, because every third stage character has one unique thing, that the only person in the world with that the only person in the world or the only with that particular trait. Find that look at that trait. 
who would be interested in someone with that trait? Because you know, any other NPC that comes up to her, she can probably deflect away, going, I'm not interested, go away, go, go for someone else. Mm -hmm. I'm a rogue, I don't want to like, you know, be hired to steal things. Mm -hmm. I'm a rogue, I'm not going to steal things. But her unique thing is you know, unique to her. So if someone can zero in on that, that could be a way to hook her in, because that's something she can't run away from, she can't mm -hmm. avoid. When I'm when I'm starting when I'm doing character creation or like in a con game, when I talk about the one unique thing, I specifically tell the players that this is a big flag, a big sign saying to the GM, this is how I want to interact with the game. That you know, if if someone wants a more you know, if if they want it to be like you know some background or you know family stuff, they'll get some heritage or something in that, or you know, or a prophecy or or even some like some trait, but it tells you what they're looking to, you know, how they're looking to have this character interact with the game world, you know, in a, in a more overt sense. If I may? Yes. One of my players in my 13th age game is not the strongest role player in the world. He, he, he tries, but a lot of times he just kind of, you know, stumbles a bit. His one unique thing is he's a halfling fighter, and he is a survivor of the Battle of Fall Hollow, where a living dungeon came up underneath a halfling village, and it was just a massacre. Demons boiled up and everything. But he, you know, he was he survived, and so he's got this reputation by virtue of that. And I've been dragging that in. You know, it's like you know, people have heard of him, and they'll come to him for stuff. So if you can, I don't. Again, once you once you figure out what her one unique thing is, you can, <laughs> you know. But yeah, just bring that directly. Bring that directly to them, and he's been just once. Once he saw that that mattered, a lot of the a lot of the uh, players just, I think, have a hard time, especially if they're not used to Thirteenth Age. They have a hard time really getting how the one unique thing matters. You and as a GM, you have to make it matter for them because a lot of times they can't do it themselves. <laughs> so you just gotta just just put that out there, put it right in their faces, and you know, like you, you wait a minute, you're. You're that halfling who survived Fall Hollow, you know, and it's like, you're just this little tough bastard, you know? <laughs> and don't be afraid to bring the icons in. I mean, when, when they're rolling for, for the icons, if, if they get a really nasty one or a really positive one, use that as another opportunity to, to put some role-playing into play for her. That's, that's, that's sort of the, I wrote a, um, I wrote a, an article for PageXX once about how to create meaningful icons, and one of the things I said is that icons are inherently social. They need, they have goals, and they have followers and factions um, that you interact with, and that a dragon who just sits in you know the lonely mountain on top of this pile of treasure is not an icon. And it's, it, it's sort of the flip of that with your with your player, who is, and so that's that is actually a mechanic, a social mechanic in the game that requires them to interact with the world around them. So that's interesting. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I, sort of continuing on that, and I guess I do have uh, that one player. <laughs> <laughs> um, talking about I, yeah, I, you're, you're very kind not to, not to put them on the yeah. last. But, no, no, but I, yeah. I, have a, I have a player, uh, well, his character is, is grown. And uh, he, he's an orc barbarian, and stereotypical in every way you can think of. Um, but he, the the player, very much is is he wants him to have grown up by himself and not, uh, you know, the nomad, typical loner. And so when we got to relationships with icons, 
he was basically like, well, I, I don't talk to anyone, and so I don't, and, and we just kept trying to work through it, and eventually I was like, I just kind of um, wanted to get the campaign started, and so it, it came to like, well, okay, uh, he, he doesn't really have a relationship with, with icons right now. Um, that's a good way to work through that. <laughs> the, key, the key phrase there was right now. Oh, okay. Those, because now he's out in the world doing yeah. things and making enemies and friends, so... Mm -hmm. I'd say that there are some of the icons which, despite you know, they're being social, like I said, pretty, really do fit with loners. Uh, the High Druid definitely is one that can interact with loners, because I mean, there's going to be lots of you know, wildernessy types who she's going to go out and contact, you know. Uh, also, the, uh, uh, the Orc Lord, um, you wouldn't necessarily want to have a whole lot of a positive relationship with them, but just some rabid orc in the wilderness could, you know, draw his attention. Seems like so, a conflicted, you know, uh, yeah. relationship right there. The orc lords tribes Maybe call, call that him. that character to come raid a village or whatever, and he's got a moral dilemma. Do you listen to that or not? And if you don't, then you're on the, you know, the bad list. Okay. So another idea, relationships don't have to be two-way. Um, so you could decide that, for example, Prince of Shadows has taken a very strong interest in his character. He doesn't know anything about it. <laughs> but so you could have a uh, assign his uh, relationship dice on their own secretly, and roll them secretly from the ABK, um, because he doesn't know that the, that the dwarf king or the and then have him discover that because because the Prince of Shadows keeps sending ninjas. So <laughs> yeah. right. you don't make a decision, or why, I'll make it. Why are these ninjas suffer? after me all the time? Suddenly ninjas. Yes. Well, and it could be something that's in his something in his family's past that he doesn't know about. Yeah. Could be a relationship that's drawn in because of his lineage. Um, there's a lot of ways you can work around that. You could also just, you know, as he's interacting, like they're saying, as he's interacting with the world, you pay attention to which icons he's really leaning towards and just make a note of it. Or hating on. <laughs> right. Yeah, interacting wait, with. Wait until he makes his first significant kill in the campaign and then say, hey, that orc chief whom you killed, that happened to be a close personal friend of the orc lord. Congratulations. <laughs> you now have two points hostile with the orc lord. And, I mean, that really makes him feel like he's earned it. For the other players, too. I mean, he's interacting with them, and they have relationships, so you could give them a benefit for the first one to get him to take a relationship. <laughs> the follower of the priestess could be like, have you seen our pamphlet? <laughs> <laughs> We've already had the chick track discussion. <laughs> Positive, negative, conflicted, and annoying. <laughs> um... What else do, if the character's sort of concept is this like, you know, lunar war, wanderer in the wilderness, he, you can possibly give him people to talk to who you know, aren't people. Like, you know, give, give him, like, you know, a relationship with the Hydruid and give him, like, you know, a talking wolf that follows him around, or ghosts that he's killed, people killed the Lich Lord, or, like, you know, have him find this really, really awesome, like, you know, plus two, plus two acts, whatever, which also carries with it a plus relationship with the Hydruid or something, and you can talk to the acts, like, you know, go to Elric or Conan or something. <laughs> Okay, thank you. That's all really good advice. Thank you. Yes. So, me personally, I have a lot of hard time remem remembering to incorporate the one unique things of my players that are maybe not like earth shattering. Like, I have one player whose one unique thing is that he bleeds words instead of blood. That's easy. Anytime he's hitting combat, you know, a poem spills out. I can narrate that. That's easier. Wow. Or, that's <laughs> cool. cool. And, and that's the coolest one in the campaign, so all the rest are disappointments. <laughs> <laughs> There's no such thing. <laughs> 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 
But there's well, a player who's one of the new things that, that, that uh, she's a drowned, she can talk to spiders. Um, and so that's, you know, and that'd be very easy for me to just say, hey, when you wake up in, the, in one morning, there's a spider in the corner, and he just says, hey, good morning. Like, it'd be easy, an easy way, but I, I, just, for, I forget <laughs> that, and so does the player. So what's a good way to remember? Yeah, so I, I, I'm, actually, I'm actually in the same boat because... Um, um, one of the one of the uh, PCs in my campaign, uh, his one unique thing is something like dogs love me and I can talk to them, and I remembered that exactly once because <laughs> like yeah yeah it's like oh you're oh you're walking around and you run into a dog, <laughs> it's like, I never remember that. So uh, there's two things you can do. Um, so more than two, but okay, two things, <laughs> well, three things you can do is uh, okay so. Keep a set of index cards, write down all the pertinence of the character, you know, their one unique thing, their backgrounds. And every, uh, every, every new scene, every, after every rest, shuffle them. Oh, oh, the guy who can speak to spiders has come up. Okay, well, let's, let's incorporate that into this thing. Oh, there's a spider over there in the corner. Oh, can I talk to it? Or make it somehow more important than the player thinks it is. Oh, I can talk to spiders. Oh, great, that's because you're the chosen of the spider goddess. <laughs> You didn't realize that you're the chosen of the spider goddess, but this is why you can talk to spiders. So try and dig in to be why. What's the bigger meaning of I can talk to spiders? Yeah, I'd say that kind of along the same lines. Um, as a GM, it's sort of your job to, if they give you something that's sort of baseline, to really start thinking about themes that that player you, you think would like and trying to just come up with where that might take them, you know, at the end of adventure tier, of end of champion tier. And always revisit that every, you know, between, like you said, scenes and that, okay, where's it going? What kind of stuff can I implement into this current adventure that taps into that for each of the characters? It's just, it's a, a, a big piece of it falls back on you to just kind of remember and whatever cues you need to do to, to do that in between sessions or whatever. Make life easier on yourself as a GM. You know, if, you, if you've got something you want the players to do as part of the story, like, how am I going to get them to do that? Look at their one unique thing first. See if something in there will allow you to push them to that before you kind of come up with something else creative. That way you're still incorporating them back into the story and it will be easier for you. Index cards are crazy useful for that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's no such thing as a boring or relevant one unique thing. Every one of them is a sort of challenge to go, how can this apparently insignificant pointless fact be like your absolute cosmic significance. Okay. <laughs> um, one of my uh, one of my very early uh, characters. Bring it. <laughs> <laughs> had the one unique thing. I can play the halfling national anthem on my armpit. Cool. It pisses off halflings, doesn't it? <laughs> well, he is a halfling, so uh, that's, <laughs> that's that could be very disrespectful, or it could be something that raises him very high. You know. Okay. I see a lot of halfling you're right. dealing with. <laughs> Wait. Yes. The gates to Fairyland are opening. This host of the high fair coming through. They're allergic to metal. Obviously, they love trees, so if you bring wooden instruments, they're doomed. No, they'd be, they'd be angry, like, Yo, you, you bastard, you, you killed our, our friendly trees. How could you? So the Elven Nation is in crisis. They need some way to play the national anthem at this big diplomatic combat. <laughs> they can't use metal instruments and they can't use wood. In their hour of need, the elf queen oh, turns to My you. moment has, has come at last. And who's going to be the they one who tries to stop this? Oh, right? of course, yeah, exactly. Prince of Shadows will kidnap or try to kidnap that character's like, you know, loved ones 
so he can like you know, blackmail that player into bringing assassins in armed with cold iron daggers to kill the fame ambassador start a dimensional war <laughs> I mean, the, one unique thing but Harry Potter the first book all these characters have one unique thing, but their one unique thing is like, I'm really good at wizard chess. I know a lot about herbs. And they come to the final bit, and then it's like, oh, we had to get past this thing. We need to be really good at wizard chess. We no need to know about herbs. We need to be able to ride a broomstick. Things which, you know, would be significant. So you can build challenges in which play to their one unique things. So the guy gets to, a party gets to a door deep in a dungeon. It's a living dungeon. It's... The door has this giant spider on it, made out of metal and the spider, and there's no locks to pick, there's no magic here, the door's too tough to blast through, but the guy can talk to the metal spider, which allows him into the dungeon, and then suddenly he's like, wow, my one unique thing, I, I must be destined to, to be the one to lead us into this dungeon, so yeah. Harry Potter. Right? Can I talk to anything spider motifed even? <laughs> <laughs> anything with eight legs. Live so, can I glue legs up to people? <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, we can't communicate. Get the glue and some sticks. <laughs> yeah, the, the nice thing is that spiders are everywhere, and so if uh, the party's at a dead end, it's like, okay, give me a perception roll. You notice a spider crawling on the sill in the you know throne room. <laughs> oh, the other thing, unruly things and obscure ones. You don't need to read it every session. It, it, it can be just satisfying to have like, you know, one big adventure that centers around like the half of his ridiculous uh, <laughs> music. You bring that one in for one big adventure, fine, yes, tick, you're done. You, you've had your fun, you'll need yeah. the same attention. Now go away, it be better next time. <laughs> <laughs> I can start talking to spiders. I, I think it's also one useful thing. I mean, you want to include everyone, but when certain players have really good ones, and you take advantage of that, hopefully the other players can kind of see that and know that, okay, that's what I can get out of this. It's a learning opportunity, too. I mean, you know, that's, that's, there's some power there. Yes? Okay, so I'm the player. Hello, player. Yes, yes. That is a fantastic question, and we have many answers for that. Who wants to start? I'll go first, so they don't okay. take my answer. Although um, <laughs> they can, they can have the hard. Oh, I'm sorry. So, so the question was, uh, as comes up all the time, whenever we talk uh, to GMs, uh, how do we use icon roles, especially when everybody has different icons, and you are down in a dungeon or out in the wilderness where there's nobody really to interact with who's iconic. Uh, something that, that I've done is pepper the dungeon. Maybe in one corner somewhere, There, the Prince of Shadows has hidden a treasure. And and that's how you, you, can, you can pepper it in that way. Something else, um, it's hard if you know it. You don't know until the very beginning of every session what those relationships are going to be. So what we've done is we've actually switched it, and they roll at the very end of the session for the next session. Mm -hmm. So that gives... The time to think about okay, how am I gonna how am I gonna make this work for the the the, the positives or the negatives and pepper it in at the next session that, that seemed to work really well for us. Uh, you can build the experience around the roles. 
So if somebody has a uh, six with the Archmage, then they're exploring a dungeon. Have them suddenly come to a door which is all warded up and they can't get through it. And then you turn to that player and you go, well, a couple of years ago, you met a wizard and you got talking to him and the subject of wards came up. Do you want to use your six with the Archmage to get past this door? Because this is, this is not a current interaction you're having, this is a past thing. And you can even play it as like a little mini flashback and then go, okay, because of that flashback, you can now get through the door. That's your six spent. Uh, one thing with uh, icons like the Archmage and Diabolus and whatever, you know, magical servants, imps, those sorts of things can pop up wherever they need to. Another piece is if they have magical items that are sentient, right? Maybe the magic items know stuff that would be related to the icon that can help them in that battle. Maybe for that fight even, you know, they become infused with iconic power to help you in some way. You know, you don't want to do too much mechanically related stuff in general, but that's definitely valid if you're, you're fighting a special monster or whatever that is connected to one of the icons. Um, I often, if I have something good, I'll say give it to the players when I go, you've got that six with the Archmage hanging there. If you think a good idea during the game, say it to me, and I'll generally say yes, like, you know, you're fighting a bunch of goblins, you're losing, please can I recharge my fireball with that six? I go, yeah, sure, off you go. Um, the other thing is, it's not the greatest crime in the world if an accuracy just, like, rules and it doesn't happen. It's unfortunate it happens, but it's okay. I mean, no one's going to say, like, you know, oh, I rolled a 20 on that really, really relevant skill check. Can I please use it again later on for um, <laughs> my attack roll? Icon relations are rolled. Sometimes you get a good roll when you don't need it. And over the course of the campaign, it'll even out. So if, like, you know, the player from GM can leave a good way to work it in, push down the road, say, yeah, next time. <laughs> next time you think really cool. I, um... I started the campaign uh, using the icon rules myself a lot in order to shape what happened during that adventure and to generate uh, plots, but I found that it was difficult to get my players to be uh, kind of proactive with the game because I wanted them to be able to add to the world and tell me things about it that I didn't know and that I could run with, and uh, so I started putting the icon rules more on them and things really clicked when I just simply got a bag of campaign coins and handed them out for when they you know, rolled a five or a six and said, okay, pick a coin that reminds you that you have a five with the Crusader. And so they actually had something in front of them that said, here's a resource I can literally spend to do something. And when one player does that and says, okay, I, I pull out my you know, stone engraved with the sign of the Elf Queen and say, you know, I am, st I am stealing this femur from a boss we just defeated and restarting the battle, much to everyone's dismay, because I'm on orders from the Elf Queen, so let, let us pass, unharmed. I was like, okay, that works. And I was like, oh, all right, I can do that. And so, so uh, yeah, if it's an actual, like, tangible thing that you can spend to do things, it's a helpful mental Reminder: It's like, oh, even though I'm in the wilderness, I can use this to do a flashback or stumble across a crazed hermit with a conflicted relationship with the Diabolist who can <laughs> tell us something about our enemies or something like that. Have you thought about actually uh, creating a uh, gameplay accessory of these 
campaign coins, each one marked with the symbols of an icon, and then one being obviously you know unmarred, representing the six, and the other one maybe having like the two face scratched up on it, and that's the that's the conflicted. Uh, we the, have thought about that for years, <laughs> and that uh, would be a that would be a neat. It's you know it's it's and it, there's a lot of like behind the scenes businessy stuff sure. that's required you know who's going to do it is it you know something that is going to sell in sufficient quantities for it to be you know a good deal for somebody to license from us things like that yeah. so but yeah we are always looking to make that happen because it would be really cool and useful I buy it yeah <laughs> me too <laughs> right any more GM or player challenges. Player, do you want to complain about your GM? <laughs> Are you sitting next to your GM? That was a hand up. Yes. Uh, how can I help my players um, like write their one unique things? That it's uh, I, we've talked about it a bit so far, but um, I had a player whose one unique thing was like four paragraphs long, and I tried to help him distill oh, it down into Jesus. like what is your one unique thing? And he's like, my backstory, and I was like. This is good, it's useful, but it's also your icon relationships involved somehow. What is the what is what do you want to specifically get out of this? And it was like my backstory. <laughs> so I didn't quite know how to help him. And I felt really bad about that, because it's hard to get one thing out of that. Try yeah. point to the card sheet. Okay. The little box marked wooden thing say, okay, fill it in there. Yeah, I I tried to use very Weirdly stubborn about it, I don't know. Very small handwriting. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's, uh, it was his first, uh, like, non D20, like, Pathfinder game. So can you, it's can a little you, bit of a step outside of his comfort zone. Could you just sit it down for yourself in your, in your head? Like, I, you, if you had to, like, you know, sew it down, like, you know, tragic backstory is. Okay. Wait, do, do you know what it is? Do you have it written down somewhere? It's, it's can you been a while it? since I ran the game. Um, mm -hmm. It's it, it involved like I'm the only uh, halfling paladin who is also I guess if I hadn't really done that probably would have been the thing I would have used from it. I'm the only halfling paladin. But there was yeah. It was a four paragraph long backstory. Somebody. Yeah. Uh, Mike Shea maybe wrote a I, th I think and um, if it's not him I apologize uh, wrote a blog post that laid out a formula for constructing one unique things that involves locations and items and icons and I thought that was really clever. And uh, made a sheet for my characters and said here's your template yeah. and then at the bottom I columns of places, icons, you know, just things and said you can just pick these if you want or make something in Mad Libs. Yeah. So next time you're next time you're running the game just turn to all the players and go, I'm terribly sorry, I I'd forgotten everybody's one unique thing, and I want to bring him into play. Here's the sheet. Please fill it in. Oh, it doesn't have enough space. Try and distill it down. So, so don't make it. But you're you're telling him to to, to condense his wonderful four paragraph backstory. But but but, it, but it's your fault. But you've forgotten, and you need a reminder. But it needs to fit in this box. Okay. Yeah, it was like it was like four different beats, and I was like, which of these things? Is the thing you want out of it? Yeah, help me, help me to help you. You know, <laughs> and maybe just ask him what what is the most important of these options, okay. story wise, to you. I was going to say, pick pick the one that's most important to him. Make that the one unique thing, and the other three beats become what he puts ranks and backgrounds in. Yeah, well, that's what mine normally end up being is a combination of one unique things and backgrounds, yeah. and yeah. kind of mixed together, um, yeah, or inform each other at least back and forth. 
Yeah. I've been very fortunate that I've been able to get my players to create interesting backgrounds with very little prodding. I, I've got backgrounds in my campaign like veteran legionnaire, uh, accidental hit woman, <laughs> <laughs> stuff like that. So I mean that 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 has just given me just fertile ground to <laughs> mess with them. When you when you go even, um, I'll just sort of keep going on that then into into the backgrounds. Uh, you know, sort of that's another side that went again. Uh, four paragraphs, okay. One's one anything, the other three backgrounds. Do yeah. or um, you know, it, I find that there's a nice little, almost like more vague. You know, there's there's a nice sweet spot between you know, uber specific and vague on the backgrounds. They can really sort of fit that niche as well. Sort of get people to. Okay, well, yeah, I'm a hunter. Okay, well, give me like three adjectives on that and we'll talk. <laughs> and it really helps to, you know, to either bring up backstory if they haven't gotten it or help them to distill everything into sort of you know, concrete little bite-sized useful chunks. Mm-hmm. I think something that's unique about 13th Age is how much power the players have to define the scope of the campaign. And that can be something to help stress. So, for example, the Halfling Pal, for example, if you, I mean, you just now distill it down to you are the only halfling paladin. But in a, in a D and D game, for example, if a player said, "All right, I want to be the only halfling paladin in the world," like, well, does that fit within the scope of what the DM wants to do? And I mean, so it varies based on the kind of game you want to run. It may not be the case that like you may have ideas for the things that you want to show up in the setting. Maybe that won't work. But if you can convey to the player, look, you know, if you want to be the only, like, the, the gods are gone. You are the only. Uh, true believer of what you like that indicating to the player that they have the power to shape anything that's going to, to move and uh, like the scope of what's going to happen um, can be helpful, especially if someone's coming from a background with a Pathfinder or, or D&D where um, the players don't really have that foundation. You know, I'd like to I'd like to maybe put a question to to our palace uh, based on that. So, so um, he was talking about uh, about the extent to which players shape the campaign and influence the world, uh, which is a thing that I also absolutely love um, about Thirteenth Age and was a big part of starting my campaign. Um, I was wondering with you guys when you're starting a campaign, to is there a limit to which the players can influence the world in the campaign? Like, are there some things that you just say, I'll budge on everything else but this. This is really important to my campaign, and so I, I'm, I'm not going to change that. Please choose a different, one unique thing. For me, it was, the Orc Lord is always a villain. Like, like no matter how nice a guy your character thinks the Orc Lord is, he's really not. <laughs> Uh, I'm trying to think of anything. I, I, I think, I, yeah, I think the basics of the game itself, as long as you don't change the basics of this game, otherwise you're not playing this game, right? The icons are the icons. That is what they are. As long as you're not influencing that or making the Orc Lord the best guy in the world, uh, <laughs> maybe that guy is, but to the rest of the world, he's well-hated. Um, no, I, the more the players, in, in my opinion... The more the players influence the world, the more invested they'll be in it, and the more fun they'll have in it later. I, um, unless it's something truly, truly outrageous, where they're like, I am, uh, I am the only space marine in my platoon with a with purple hair, and you're like, well, could we, could we perhaps make that, could we make that knight instead of space marines? <laughs> um, but 
you, you fascist. You, <laughs> <laughs> you, you could die. Uh, you could. This is being recorded, so I won't make the joke of Games Workshop I just thought of. Ask me afterwards. <laughs> but maybe the, maybe the challenge would be he has to continually shave his head because he has purple, purple hair, hair and it doesn't fit. Uh, so this, uh, this actually did, did come up recently. Um, so there's a certain player in our game who is um, of a non-standard race and uh, he's, he's playing... Uh, uh, he's playing a uh, characters of a non-standard race. <laughs> the player is of a standard oh, race human. So uh, suddenly everything went horribly wrong. <laughs> so he's, he's, he's playing a cat person, um, and he really, really wants to go see the gods, which are the stars... Uh, but secretly the stars are actually stars. And when we ended up going to, uh, accidentally going to another reality, uh, we, we actually got to a spaceport. And it, it, for, so for a couple of sessions, it all went a bit, all went a bit sci-fi. And he, uh, so he, he managed to get himself passage uh, on a spaceship to the stars. And then was like, I want to see them closer. What's this door called? Airlock? Okay, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> um, so yeah, you, you can have one unique things which cause the game world to become distorted. Like, somebody could say, oh, I'm the, I'm the only dwarf who doesn't fight with a clockwork axe. Everybody else fights with a clockwork axe. Well, now dwarves have clockwork axes. So you can, you can let it distort the game world. And I, I, would even let the, I would even let villainous icons be good icons. If that's what the player's... One, if somebody says, oh, the Lich King's a good guy, and the, the Emperor's a bad guy, but I'm the only one who knows this, or, or whatever, then, then it helps to inform the game world. The, uh, yeah, I mean, the, since my uh, wife joined the campaign, she didn't understand from the short summary of what the three are like. She didn't understand they were supposed to be bad guys. So, in my campaign, <laughs> like, the three are now good guys. And, yeah. If she's never been exposed to the typical, you know, metallic-chromatic dichotomy, you know. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> sure, whatever, dragons. And I think that's an important point about villainous and good icons. In that the good icons are only good because their morality aligns with the majority morality in, in the game world. So you, you could flip that round. I mean, the, the Lich King's good because he's trying to regain his throne, which was stolen from him. Uh, the Orc Lord's good because... I mean, the elves turned an elf into an orc and created this whole race, and he's just trying to get a decent deal for his race and, and try and save them from what they've become, maybe. Or maybe he just likes eating people. Um, so, so any villainous icon could be a good icon. And any, any good icon could be, uh, in one of our campaigns, the priestess was evil. She, uh, so in, in, the, uh, in the cathedral, she had all the gods imprisoned in little orbs deep in the cathedral and that's where she was getting her power from and then giving it to people who happened to align with her viewpoints that's fine. and so we, we had one of our characters have the one unique thing that he was the only remaining worshipper of the moon because the orb that contained the moon god had a tiny crack in it and just enough energy could get out from this one cleric so we, we ended up fighting the forces of good on the side of evil and yet right. everything was flipped around uh, Cal, there's, uh... Yeah, uh... <coughs> what are your boundaries? Well, I'm pretty open with whatever they want to do, but what I generally do is maybe set some parameters ahead of time, like, these are the icons I'm kind of playing with in this, in this, uh, uh 
you know, ambiguous or heroic or whatever. But then I'll listen to what they want to do, and if the, the story maybe adjusts an icon, for example, then I come back to what I was thinking and said, okay, we can probably do that. Or maybe I say, no, I really want this to be this way. So I let them know kind of ahead of time what I'm generally looking for and seeing if they want to kind of play within that framework and then if they want to do something else, adjusting a little bit to make it work. But as far as, like, other than icons, you know, any other stuff that affects the world, I'm pretty open to making the story fit them. Just make sure you write it down and remember it later. Because it's like, wait a minute, what... How many how many levels is access built on? You know, just <laughs> yeah. And I agree. I mean, icons can be however you want them to be. I think that you know, it just as long as you let the players know ahead of time, kind of what this generally is, you're good. I'm a big fan of any campaign where you can say to players, "You're all something." Like you know, my latest campaign, Greatest for Stone Thief, you're all working for the priestess in um, Priestess Town. Priestess Town. Exactly. So we said, either you play if you want, but you must have a positive or conflicted relationship with the priestess. That has she has to be one of your icons. That meant players had like complete freedom to go off and have like their elf diplomat, their like you know recently unfrozen spy from High Rock who's now working for the Blue. Um, where the hell Chris is playing something wacky. Basically, they could all go in their own direction, but they're the sort of central anchoring point that brought them together as a party. And I could always say, if I'm nothing else, the priestess calls you all together and says, as you're living in my town, and respect the eighth of your people, here's what you're doing this week. So I would be happy to like, you know, anchor them with a like, you know, mandated like, relationship, just to make things easier yeah. for me. That's a right, good point, because one unique things can change. Yeah. So if somebody's, I'm the only worshipper of this god, that can easily change to, I'm the first worshipper of this god. Mm. So one unique things can, can over the course of the campaign, the story can change by one unique things. Presumably, you'd like to get more, you know? <laughs> I'm, I'm a big believer in the third or fourth session, sort of bring the campaign back to the garage and recheck everything. Mm. Like in, especially for stage where... In the first character session, you're setting up so much about your characters. Like, you know, what is the absolute, what do you think of my character? What are their backgrounds? Who are my friends with? Who, who are my sort of champions of the world, my icons? And sometimes a player can have an idea in the first session that just doesn't work in play. Like, you know, one, just one single player has this relationship with the Orc Lord. Everyone else is all civilized icons or magic icons and so forth. And you look at that one Orc Lord relationship there, and you know how you to bring it in. The player has no idea how it's good to be in. The other players really care about it. Go like, you know, do you want to change that? Don't, don't let anything be set in stone in the campaign. I haven't thought about that. I'll usually let them change their powers around mm -hmm. after the first session because 
oh crap, I didn't think about this, yeah. I don't like this power function. Letting them change more is actually very valuable. Yeah, but if something hasn't come up in the first two sessions, then like, you sort of think, you know, why is that not coming up? Um, I mean, it, it, it's hard to like, you know, create the character you're going to be playing for the next like year or whatever and get it right first time. You know, there's, there's a reason like novels do second and third drafts. There's a reason that <laughs> Cal attacks my, pen, my, my like, drafts and sends them back again. <laughs> Because again, your, your first idea isn't always the right one. So, similarly for players, there's no reason to sort of say, nope, you're, <laughs> you wrote, you're the only half in Powell on day one. That's, the, <laughs> that's where you are for now and the end of time. Yes. Um, so, uh, obviously, we've been talking about a lot, of these, a lot about these icons, and they're, they're wonderful. Uh, but I had a player. Um, He's a PhD candidate in macroeconomics, and he came to me and he was like, we have been talking about system, talking about running the campaign, and he said, this, this is awesome, I'm, I'm really excited about this, but I want to add an icon. He wanted to add this uh, miserly super, yeah, the economist basically, <laughs> the super banker who, who uh, ran all the banks in the world and, and loved gold and, and Scrooge, Scrooge McDuck type of character. Yep. Um, <laughs> And we talked about we talked about it on the table, and uh, we actually ended up going with it. And it's been interesting. Uh, it's been yeah. an interesting new faction in the world, sort of. Uh, I, I just wanted to get your guys' thoughts on uh, like how how to go about because because creating an icon in the world is it, it kind of put me through a lot of yes. humbling thoughts, and it's like how how do I is that something you guys would even be comfortable with, and, and how how would you think about it? I I mean I I did the uh, Midgard icons for Cobalt Press, so I spent uh, so I like had to create thirteen icons worthy of publication, and it's it is an effort, um, especially when the they originally weren't created as icons; they were just powerful NPCs for Pathfinder. It's like, well, how do we iconify them? So uh, so yeah, yeah, a player came to me and said. I want to make a new icon. It's like, yes, please. <laughs> okay. I would love to start champagne where all my players just made up their own icons. Yeah. And these are the ones that are in the world. That's how we start. I mean, that was part of the appeal. So, so what makes a good icon? Location. Location, location. Like, like where is their physical realm of influence? Or unless there's somebody who wanders around a lot. Plays um, into their network a little bit. Yeah. What kind of network do they have? What is their relationship with adventurers? Yeah. I, I always think of icons as yeah, relation, yeah, allies and enemies. I always think of icons as sort of conceptual glue. Like in yeah. your classic fantasy D D campaign or whatever, F twenty is like you know, if I have an undead gimmick in the background, like you know, I can talk to spirits dead or whatever, and some other player is playing a you know, has like, you know, a wand of necromancy or something and they can like visit zombies. Those two facts aren't connected. They're sort of in the same ballpark, but there's no sort of reason for us to interact. There's no nothing we have in common other than vague undeadness. What an icon does, literally, takes the vague concept of some concept of undead stuff and gives it a name, gives it a personality, gives it a reason to act, gives it a focus in the campaign. Similarly, all nature wildernessy stuff gets sort of distilled concentrated into the High Druid. That means that the players now have a sort of a, a sort of thing they can link together on. Like, you know, I, I can talk to ghosts, I relationship with the Lich King, that magic wand belongs to the Lich King. Maybe now the Lich King wants me to take that wand off of you, maybe like, you know, 
that wand just keeps being lichy or something, that's my gimmick. So if you create an icon like the, like the Economist, he was saying, right, there is this point in the campaign, this like, conceptual point of like, a, this guy is in charge of all economic stuff. Any other economic stuff that other players come up with should now be plugging back into that Economist. May I ask, what does what does the Economist want? Basically, <laughs> all the gold in the world. <laughs> uh, 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 he, he, yeah, he, uh, he was he was sort of this this man who who seeked power through wealth, uh, um, and and sort of uh, he, he, his, uh, his 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 goals was like control of trade routes throughout the whole world and. Um, the, the problem I had was, the problem I had fleshing out was like um, it's 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 all well and good that that's his goals. I, I had trouble sort of maybe making him into an interesting character for the rest of the party. Who who um, I mean, obviously everyone likes gold, right? And so so uh, if if there's one guy who controls all the economics in the world or whatever, but well, but but there's a why behind that. It's like why does he want to control? The world's economy, and having um, taken some economics classes <laughs> in college, I think. Well, I mean, this, you know, presumably he wants to do things like raise and lower interest rates, and basically just sort of keep civilization on track or move it in a certain direction. You know, maybe he's a uh, maybe he's a rabid libertarian who wants to dismantle the archmage's you know welfare state of magical nodes and <laughs> things like that. So, you know, and just conjuring up bread for poor people. I mean, what the hell? Um, it's, that's a terrible idea. But but also um, one thing that that is at the end of every icon write up is everything will be all right unless. as long as you know or unless and, and so it's like the other, what happens when they get out of control. The other pieces, who yeah. what other icons is that icon in, in opposition with and allied yeah. with? And I would suggest if you added one, you maybe just take one away at the same time, just one that no one else is using. Yeah. Um, you know, just to keep things simple. Uh, but when you know who is opposing the economists, then you have your stories. Oh, that's, that's, I mean, the, the opposing the economist, you've got... Dwarf Lord. Dwarf Lord. Yeah, he wants the gold. Uh, but got the dragons, who uh, some of them hoard gold, some of them are gold, some of them shed gold from their scales. He's supposed to be opposing uh, the High Druid. The High Druid. She would care him, but he'd be like, yo, traitors to the forests. Chain the seas. Uh -huh. uh, but the emperor's uh, gonna love him, right? Emperor. Well, presumably, well, unless it's <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's a. Archmage, Archmage, I think, would be pro him. It's like, I mean, economics is magic. I just read um, the Global Minotaur, and seriously, the world economy runs on sorcery and illusionism. <laughs> and the uh, the um, uh, Prince of Shadows. Yes, exactly. Here's a man who is hoarding all the gold. In fact, it would, wouldn't it be amazing if, if the Prince of Shadows was the economist? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I, th I think you have the economist already. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Another way you could take that is uh, Chinese mythology has a um, a very interesting take on heaven and how it runs. There's the celestial bureaucracy, yeah. and you could kind of take that in another direction. Is not he's not really he's not he could be not so much the economist but the bureaucrat. And you know, it, it, you, you could angle it that way if you wanted to, to where it, it's a little bit less real world, so it doesn't conflict as much with the the icons directly. Maybe I don't know. That's just a thought. If you have the economist, like, is there a god of wealth who the priestess is involved with? How do they interact? Yeah. Like, okay, buy and sell gold for that matter. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, we have about five minutes, um, so uh, we could take another question. Or we could do economist puffins all day. <laughs> I really like the economist. I mean, yeah, in the, yeah. in the well, like, man, I, I called that guy. He's the Merchant King. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. the Merchant King does business with all the traders and merchants or whatever on the front side, but his, his dark side is it's basically the mob. You know, organized crime. You know, just as an idea for The Economist, um, you go to uh, Star Trek and the Ferengi. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Or the, uh, the um, East India Company, based, the Ferengi were based on. They, they, they were mad. The opium wars. I mean, look, look at real history. This guy is basically kickstarting global trade and, you know, all oh, that sort of war. stuff. Yeah, the, I mean, uh, kind of an ongoing conflict is... an ally of the Orc Lord. It, oh, the economy you, loves you the war. You monetize the Orc Lords. The Crusader. Uh, the Crusader. <laughs> go and look at Emily Dresler Thornburg's blog. It's off... Um, it's off oh, God, it's like she, she does... Like, it's, it's murder hobos. The economics of creation of murder hobos. Yeah. She's a dozen articles up there. They're all fantastic. It's economic implications of adventures and... Every one of them is staggeringly good. Yes, wreck everything. Uh, one question back yeah, there. So we're talking about gold. What do I have my players spend their gold on? Oh, oh, I'm so glad you asked this. Okay, so. Potions, oils. Have we got a product for you? Candles, clay, and dancing shoes. Um, yeah. So there's. Um, think, I think. I made them enter this like combat tournament to win this dead wizard's estate just so they would have something to spend their so, uh So one of the things in Shards of a Broken Sky is an entire chapter on how to how to spend gold with Shards of a Broken Sky in its, in its first first few bits. The, the players can potentially find a vault full of gold. Okay, so it, it's terrible to try and get it out of there and to any place they can spend it. But... You could potentially end up with a vault full of gold. So it's got a. Uh, okay, so you want to. You've got a magic item and you want to sell it. Well, you're going to have to finance an auction, and a high class auction at that. Uh, oh, you want to buy a magic. Like, actually, buy, you can't go to a market and buy a magic item, but perhaps there's an auction. Well, if you're going to go to an auction, then you're going to need to buy tickets for it. You're going to need fancy clothes. You're going to need guards. You're going to need to meet the auctioneer and the person selling it in a really nice place. You're going to need to rent a house in Axis in order to attend an auction for a magic item. And it's got all these other, other bits on how to, uh, how to divest players of gold, or divest their characters of gold, rather. Um, so uh, so uh, one of the things Divesting you can do... Divesting players of gold is our business. <laughs> one of the things you can do is um, signs of wealth. So you say to them, oh, you've got a thousand gold pieces. Uh, in exchange for that thousand gold pieces, uh, now you will never go hungry again. That is one of your signs of wealth. I, um, I, I told my players when they, when they kind of struck it rich uh, at one point, I said, okay, next time you're in a position to spend money, tell me what one extravagant purchase you made. Yes. And, and that's, you know, that'll appear in your story. So you, 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 can, you can put signs of wealth in. They're not quite backgrounds, but you could say, oh, for 2,000 gold pieces, you now have servants. For 3,000, you now have a fortified farm in the country. But you can also take it in reverse. So if they suddenly need a lot of money, you're like, that farm, for 1,000, you can get rid of that farm. <laughs> I'd say, uh, you know, one option is if any of the pl players are interested, starting a business, like a side business, as, you know, maybe they're traders as they go from place to place. 
<laughs> and uh, um, yeah, just establishing something permanent. Okay, so in, in terms of real world, we might have to bribe to get a 13-day monthly on just like, um, you know, like a more robust economy, like, you know, like just this. The economist, you gotta, you gotta bribe the economist. So, <laughs> um, so, uh, I, I, I think I've already written one of those, and I just need to nudge Rob about getting into the queue. It's not so much about about bribing. It's about convincing Rob that it's fun and interesting, and that it can be done well. Those are the two things that will get Rob to do something. Otherwise, he won't do it. Yeah. Um, excellent. Well, thank you so much, guys. We hope you've enjoyed this special Tome Show episode featuring the 13th Age seminars from Gen Con 2015. We'll be back to our regular programming next week. Thanks for listening.